Hello, my name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You usually can expect a focus on issues with a broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will always make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. As many companies and parliaments take a break in August, you might have thought there's not much to say this month, but you are wrong. We've actually got three really interesting topics for you. For today's edition, we are focusing on the BRICS Leader Summit in South Africa, the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization Summit in Brazil, and a gathering of G20 health ministers that is going to give us a glimpse of what is on the global health agenda now that COVID-19 is no longer the key dominant concern. So let's talk about BRICS first of all. Welcome back, Magnus Oberman. Hi, Magnus. Hi, Isabel. Magnus is an associate here at GC, and we talked last month about the Russia-Africa Summit. And now we're back with another summit. The BRICS Summit, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, is being hosted by South Africa this year and is going to take place from the 22nd to the 24th of August in Johannesburg. It's going to see the leaders of the five BRICS countries meet in person. Or will they? Because that has actually been one of the most controversial aspects of this summit. Magnus, tell me a bit more about the summit, why it matters, and why the attendance question has gathered so much attention this year. Yes, Isabel, you're absolutely right. Uh, this was supposed to be the first in-person meeting of the BRICS since the pandemic. But uh, one important uh, guest, namely Russian President Vladimir Putin, will actually not be attending in person because there's ICC arrest warrant against him, meaning that had he traveled to South Africa, South Africa would have been obliged to arrest him. And that, of course, Russia didn't particularly like that. Putin even threatened that if he were arrested, that would be a declaration of war against Russia. And that has made it rather complicated to, for, for him to participate in the summit. In the end, solution was reached that Putin will not attend in person, but uh, virtually through video link. But at least the summit can take place with the four other leaders and it will not have to be moved to China, which was uh, considered for some time because there was the expectation that China would maybe not be as strict with the ICC warrant as, as South Africa has to be because South Africa is a member of the Rome Institute. But in the end, leaders decided that the meeting should take place in South Africa because moving it would have looked rather embarrassing for everybody involved, really. And beyond the global importance of the meeting, which we'll talk about in a second, I believe, the meeting is also quite important for South Africa and the ruling African National Congress to really shine on the international stage because the ANC is under big pressure to deliver better public administration been major corruption scandals in the last decade, uh, which have affected the country's competitiveness, uh, which one might say is even visible in, in some parts of uh, Johannesburg where load shedding is an issue. And so therefore, it is good for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa that he can, that he gets the stage and that he can also, in a way, has the chance to act as the advocate of the African continent, because South Africa, as things stand currently, is the only African BRICS member. Yeah, especially with an election looming for South Africa, I think pulling off a successful summit is going to be particularly important for, for Ramaphosa. And I do think the point about uh, arresting Putin has been absolutely fascinating. I don't think they really wanted to arrest him. It would have been awfully diplomatic for, for South Africa. 
But equally, if they hadn't done it, the kind of diplomatic fallout from that would have also been really painful. So I think him not attending was probably the, the best solution for, for everyone there. But South Africa, of course, not the only important country in this. We're expecting the leaders of China, India, Brazil in, in person. And China has historically been calling the shots when it comes to BRICS. So what is on the minds of the different countries as they head into the summit? That's a very interesting question because I would say that basically all of them are undergoing some sort of transformation as far as their international relations are concerned. If we start with China, it's just appointed a new foreign minister, or rather an old one, Wang Yi, uh, and because his predecessor, Qin Gang, who was also his successor after his first term as foreign minister, was retired following what appears like internal power struggles or, or maybe even espionage allegations. However, Qin Gang has maintained his role as state councillor, which is normally even more powerful, perhaps. Uh, and this has uh, sparked some confusion abroad. So for China, it will be yeah, quite important uh, you know, to, to, to set things straight and, 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 and show you know, who, who is in charge and, and what the Chinese positions are on, on matters concerning the BRICS. If we look at the next member, India, India has perhaps the most stable recent foreign policy record among the BRICS. It has a very strong record of economic growth and has recently, of course, overtaken China as the world's most populous country, meaning the world's largest population. It's also the current host of the G20 and has been wooed by many uh, Western or G7 nations as well, who see in it a rising star in geopolitics and would like to expand strategic cooperation. Most recently, last week, the German Minister for the Economy and Climate Action, Robert Habeck, was in New Delhi, for example. And the world's new interest in India is also partly due to the fact that India could be considered some sort of a geopolitical swing state, perhaps, meaning India is against Russia's war and against Chinese territorial claims in the Asia-Pacific region. But at the same time, India benefits from cheaper Russian oil since the invasion of Ukraine. And despite being the world's largest democracy, it is sometimes accused of authoritarian tendencies and so not treating its Muslim minority in particular very well. So India is, is an important one to watch here. If we move on to the next one, Brazil. Brazil is interesting because it has only very recently returned to the international stage, so to speak, when Lula da Silva took over from Jair Bolsonaro, who was rather isolationist-minded, on the 1st of January. So we're basically now a good six, six months into Lula's presidency, which, by the way, is his second one already. And what is already notable is that there were many expectations towards him from all over the world, basically, when it comes to environmental protection and the Amazonas rainforest and so on and so forth. And Lula has actually received a lot of praise for that, but there's also been some criticism towards his foreign policy when it comes to positioning Brazil and Latin America on the on the war in Ukraine, where where Brazil has, has taken an almost equidistant position between Russia and Ukraine, which of course has has not been very well received in the West, but you know, rather were received in, in Russia and China, perhaps. So it would be very interesting to watch how Lula and how Brazil will position themselves this time at the summit. Well, and lastly, Russia. I think here the transition that Russia's international relations are going through are pretty obvious. 
But beyond the obvious, Russia is now very clearly more active in what we could perhaps label non-Western or non-traditional international fora like the BRICS, uh, where it has not been uh, excluded, where it is still a member, in contrast to many of the quote-unquote traditional international organizations. Yeah, and for Moscow, it's just really important at the moment to show that it has influential, powerful, important international partners uh, and, and, and friends, especially because Putin can't even attend in person. I think that has always been one of the most interesting aspects of the BRICS group, because it is such a diverse mix of countries who are not necessarily geopolitically aligned. And in some cases, like India and China, have some active areas of tension. But equally, there is something that unifies them going into the summit, isn't there? What brings them all together? I would say that what connects the BRICS is their shared ambition to varying degrees to make the next 100 years a BRICS century. That means, broadly speaking, a new international order that should see a greater role for, for their countries in international affairs and less ownership for the old guard, the West or the G7, who have been the dominant geopolitical actors at least since the end of the Cold War and probably even longer. And one of the ways to conceive this is, of course, with counterbalancing the Western hegemony in international trade and financial structures. So, for example, the BRICS will discuss de-dollarization and how they can increase the use of their own currency in international trade. And here again, the geopolitical context of the summit is really important because since the US and its partners imposed a lot of financial sanctions against Russia, the Chinese yuan, or renminbi, has become a lot more popular to pay Russia for energy de deliveries. For example, Pakistan is doing that, even though they're, they're not even a, they're not a BRICS member, but but still now for the first time are buying Russian oil and paying with that in, in Chinese currency. And that is an interesting development, although overall the role of the US dollar is, of course, not, not really challenged at the moment. Yeah, I've been finding that quite interesting to see that day. I think the South Africans have officially said that a BRICS common currency is off the agenda, which was something that was much talked about in the media in a run-up to the conference. But I think we should definitely expect kind of pushing for more use of national currencies in trade between the, the BRICS blocks. This is going to be a fascinating summit to, to watch from afar. And I'm sure our clients will be interested to hear how each of these individual countries are going into it, how they're coming out of it, and if we might see a larger BRICS group by the end of it. For our next segment, we are going to talk about the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization Summit. This is a summit that's going to take place on the 8th and 9th of August in Brazil. And the summit brings together leaders from the eight Amazon countries and also includes Emmanuel Macron for French Guiana and US climate envoy John Kerry as a special guest. And the challenges facing the Amazon have been really well documented. We're talking about deforestation due to mining and logging and oil and gas production, and they've been quite long running. But this year's summit is going to be particularly important because Brazil is no longer governed by Bolsonaro, who really deprioritized Brazil's cooperation with the organization, and because climate finance is going to be a top theme for COP28. To talk about this, we have our new associate director in the climate and sustainability team with us. Welcome, Maris Tabetsis. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Well, fantastic to have you here, Morris, for your first podcast appearance and to talk about such an interesting topic. So first, I'd like to hear why you think there's been a bit more coverage, a bit more hype about the summit than we've heard about in previous years. That's a great question. We've seen a lot more hype around the Amazon Treaty Summit this year. 
And I think it can be summarized basically in Brazil is back. There was a lot of rolling back of progress on the Amazon under Bolsonaro's four years in office. And now that Lula da Silva is back himself, he's had a big concerted focus on doing more on the Amazon. The conference is hosted in Brazil this year. Brazil is hosting G20 next year. And so Lula really wanted to make it a big feature of a big feature of his presidency to see real progress. There actually has already been progress. There's been something like a decrease of 34% in deforestation in the first six months of this year compared to last year. And there's there's been a crackdown on criminal activity and, and he's already seen quite a bit of progress and he's keen to put this on the world stage. There's two other things that have been happening globally that make this year's uh, conference big. The first one is the focus on climate finance. Climate finance is absolutely massive this year. COP28 in Dubai is going to be all about climate finance. And the final one is around extreme weather. I mean, we've seen that last month is, is going to be, you know, the hottest on record. July, I think, was on track to be the hottest on record ever as well. There's been all sorts of natural disasters in the Amazon and around Latin America. So it's obviously pushed that front of mind for people. That's really interesting. So it sounds like it's a, a confluence of different events that make this one a particularly punchy summit. Brazil is back with Lula. We've got the weather backdrop and we have climate finance, which is a big priority coming into COP28. What I think is sometimes an issue with some of these summits is that they become fora for discussing problems and for raising awareness of the big challenges. Do you think that's going to be similar here? Yeah, I think it's going to be about both and, and necessarily so. And to understand this well, I think it's good to, to look at how the treaty started and, and what, what the purpose of the summit is. And I think like all good regional environmental fora, part of their value is in enabling kind of scientific cooperation and, and kind of data transfer and knowledge sharing. And so this is not the, the really politically exciting stuff. This is scientists getting around and sharing methodologies, sharing you know data packs and things like that. The actual summit itself is going to be about political leaders, but the backdrop is more about technical cooperation and things. And so some of that necessarily has to be about problems. I think the idea is that they build the backdrop of the problems you know, based on science, based on monitoring, based on these things, and then they look for solutions. It's quite clear that the eight Amazon countries aren't going to be able to solve these problems themselves. This is absolutely a global problem. And so their thinking for this is, let's have a single song sheet for what we care about. Let's get together and let's have a really concerted vision for what we want from the Amazon and then take this to the world stage. So the idea for this is to put this in a Belem declaration that it's being hosted in the city of Belem. And then that Belem declaration is going to be taken to the world stage, the UN General Assembly and at COP28. I think that's also particularly noteworthy because if I'm not mistaken, Belem is then going to host COP20, COP30 in two years time. But yes, yeah, so kind of a dual aspect, we've got the scientific cooperation, the technical aspects of the conference, as well as the political aspects. And it sounds like it's maybe more achievable to have concrete outcomes on the technical side. But do you assume the summit is also going to be a political success? I think it's going to be a political success compared to uh, some previous years in that it will happen and that they will have discussion. And it looks like they'll very likely come to agreement or a consensus position. And in some other four around the world, whether it's different G20 ministerial meetings and things, we've seen uh, leaders walk away or negotiators walk away without without any formal consensus, without any agreed document. 
So I, I think and then I hope that the the summit in Berlin won't see that. It will see agreement. So in the highest level, I think there's going to be a, a political success. I think the, the success that they're hoping for is having a really strong united position of their global asks as well. I don't think any of the leaders are thinking that this summit itself in early August is going to solve the Amazon crisis and is going to provide all of the answers and unlock all of the funding. They want to have a united position to be able to take that to the world. So I do think that it's going to be um, overall a political success if you note the limited scope of what we're considering success. That makes sense. And I guess if we've seen a different international forum over the last few years, how often we have seen these summits end without a joint communique because leaders couldn't find agreement on some really big topics. That does really mean we need to adjust our um, expectations for success. So if we get a strong Bellam declaration, I think that would definitely be a success. And we mentioned earlier, it's supposed to be solutions oriented as well as raising awareness of the issues. What do you think are maybe some of the kind of genuinely transformative actions that could come out of the summit? There are a few things that are being talked about. One of the real challenges in the Amazon or across the eight countries is around regulation. This sort of cross-border or or pan-continental regulation can be very challenging. And so this is very much, you know, the stick approach to to change. It's, It's having better strict regulation. In actual fact, it's quite often having that actually enforced and, and having having the regulation stuck to. One of the things we see is sort of border hopping with some bad practices. You know, when one country tightens deforestation regulation, they, the practices will hop across the border and go somewhere else. And, and you kind of have this deforestation leakage, as it's referred to. And being able to clamp down on that is very important. That is easier said than done because you can have regulation and policy and restrictions on paper, but then to have them actually enforced is quite difficult for multiple reasons. That's down to institutional capacity, law enforcement capacities. But then there's this underlying aspect of socioeconomic success as well, because some of the communities that are going to be most affected by stopping deforestation and stopping some of these destructive activities are some of the poorest communities and so this is something that leaders are very conscious of that you know they do need to have stricter regulation but they need to still provide economic opportunity for for a lot of people and so i think this is the second theme that we're hopefully going to see in the second way that amazon crisis can can be solved is around sustainable development opportunities and so it's one thing to stop bad practice but you need to enable better practice in this space, there's a plethora of different ideas and solutions, whether more sustainable agriculture, better forestry techniques. There are ways of resource extraction that, that are less damaging. And then, of course, ecotourism and the benefits from that. I mean, I won't go too much into the solutions there, but there's a lot of promise of sustainable development opportunities. A final one, and this is one where I think the leaders who are meeting in Belém are very, very much looking forward to, is around finance. So that's a bit about the regulation of finance and what finance can be used for. I think even more so is looking for international sources of finance. They say that we've got the commitment, you know, we we have the ability to protect the Amazon, but we just need some international support and we need some more international finance to do so. And and this is not just donor grants and things. This can actually be proper investments and and, um, proper commercially viable investment um, that's needed for net zero transition. Um, but also to protect the Amazon. I think what you said here at the end, that's going to be 
absolutely the red thread that's going to take us from here to COP28. The question of how do we finance the energy transition, how do governments and investors come together in blended methods is going to be one of the absolutely big topics that we have to watch from now until then. So thanks very much, Mara. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. The highlight of each country's G20 presidency is the Leader Summit. This year, that's going to take place in September. But in the run-up to the Leader Summit, there are various different sectoral meetings that take place under the G20 umbrella. And today we've chosen to talk to you about the upcoming G20 Health Ministers meeting, which is taking place on August the 18th and 19th, because the Health Ministers of the G20, because the Health Ministers of the G20 nations only meet once a year. And since COVID-19, pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response has really risen to the top of the health agenda at the multilateral stage. That means at the G20, at the UN, and of course at the WHO. And with countries divided on how exactly to prepare, to respond, and to fund the next pandemic response, the G20 has become particularly important for these discussions, especially because countries are struggling to reach consensus in other fora like the WHO. To talk about this month's gathering, I have Saskia Hirsch with me. Saskia is an associate in our health team here at GC. Hi, Saskia. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for having me. So, Saskia, set the scene for us. What is the focus of this month's meeting and why do you think the G20 has become so important for health? So a key learning uh, that we saw from the COVID-19 pandemic was in terms of the distribution of vaccines, of treatments and also other medical products. And so, for example, during COVID, we saw vaccine nationalism in some high income countries where they stocked up on vaccines, which prevented to some extent the distribution of these vaccines to lower middle income countries. And so now a key question is, how can we make sure that during the next pandemic, these vaccines and other medical products are equitably distributed across the world? And so this is a key question at the G20, but also, as you said before, at the WHO. And so across all of these platforms, the key question is not necessarily whether or not we should equitably distribute these medical products, but the key question is more in terms of what are the methods and the level and the type of interventions that we should use to make sure that we can achieve this. And here we see quite a strong global north, global south divides in terms of the level of intervention that needs to take place. And so the G20 particularly plays quite an important role here, where particularly low and middle income countries have quite a strong voice. So this platform is quite useful for them to bring together any proposals or any ideas that they might have, but also to align on their positioning at, on key issues that are being negotiated also at the WHO, for example, under the pandemic accords. That's interesting. So it almost can serve as sort of a, a preparatory meeting for the WHO where global South countries especially can align. Because I do remember back in the day when we covered the global um, vaccine distribution efforts, how big of a topic the unequal distribution of vaccines was, especially in Africa, which is the region um, I cover the most. So I think that sounds like something that is absolutely vital to have on the agenda now. So the next time this happens, there is a better effort from the beginning to make this more more equitable. I could imagine that's a contentious issue. Are there any other issues on the agenda that you fear could be particularly contentious in the meeting? So there are a few, and I think all of them do relate back to this equitable distribution and the key question of how we can prepare and respond to the next pandemic. I think the key question is, for example, so there are, there are a range of 
new proposals of interventions that we can use for the next pandemic. So, for example, one of them is the scaling up of manufacturing infrastructure in low middle income countries to kind of ease the kind of distribution and access of medical products in those regions. But another one, for example, and that follows uh, discussions at the World Traders Organization is the use of intellectual property waivers and technology transfers to be able to develop vaccines and therapeutics more widely. And then finally, for example, also things in terms of sharing information. So for example, when there is a new pathogen that is of pandemic concern being detected in a certain country, it is critical that that information is being shared rapidly across the world so that every single country can prepare effectively for that potential pandemic. And so there are a lot of discussions going on on how, what is the best way to do this and how, what is the best way to share this information? But then also, what is then the best way to make sure that any resources that are needed to respond to this potential pandemic are again distributed effectively across the world to respond to this potential pandemic? So it essentially, I think countries overall have all the same goal. We all want to make sure that we either prevent or prepare properly for the next pandemic. But in terms of the, the some of the interventions that I just mentioned, countries are very much divided on to what extent these measures should be used. And so that is these are some of the key contentious issues that we see at the WHO, but will also pop up at the G20, where some of these are being discussed. Yeah, I really, I'm quite impressed. I asked you for contentious issues, and I think all of these have been across the last few years, some of the most hotly debated issues for how we're going to improve and where countries really are not on the same page. The IP issue, I think, has been so fundamentally disagreed on by different countries, even not just between the North-South divide, even kind of within the global North countries, we're not necessarily on the same same page here. So I describe this as possibly being sort of a, a preparatory forum for the WHO. Is that the right way to categorize that? Or what do you think could be the implications of the G20 meeting for negotiations at the WHO? Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty spot on. So just for context, so right now at the WHO, there are negotiations going on on a pandemic treaty, which is an internationally legally binding instrument that would essentially outline a range of measures to prevent, prepare and respond to the next pandemic. And this is, there are a lot of parallel discussions going on at the G20, at the UNGA this year as well, on how to prepare for the next pandemic. But this one at the WHO is quite key since it will be a legally binding instrument. And so, yes, yeah, so I think this upcoming meeting at the G20 is quite key as in both in terms of proposals that are just being brought forward at the G20. So essentially anything that's being brought forward at the G20, either in terms of proposals, but also just at the informal negotiations that are happening there, tends to have a ripple effect into negotiations at other platforms like the WHO's pandemic accord. Um, and this, this can mean a wide range of things. So either, for example, we could see after the, the G20, some new country alliances that are taking, are taking form that we can then see also at the WHO. But it can also be in terms of even some movement in terms of uh, the proposals that are taking place, that are being discussed at the WHO, that have now been discussed at the G20 as well, where countries have found some alignment in terms of their positioning and where they find some agreements. But it can also be the opposite, that they find that they completely disagree on some of the proposals that are happening at the WHO and they find some alternate alternative proposals at the G20 
where they tend to slightly easier agree on things since it's a more NMIC dominant platform. I think you make a really interesting point there that is valid for all G20 discussions. It's interesting what happens in front of the cameras, but sometimes what happens away from the cameras in the corridors is almost more important because that is where these informal conversations are held that could lead to the formations of new alliances. So I think that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Maybe just to finish on, I think sometimes these G20 type discussions seem quite far removed for for industry, for manufacturers, for the pharmaceutical companies, other players in the health sector. Why do you think people who are active in the health sector should still care about these fora? How do you think all of this filters through to the kind of more impactful, don't like that. How do you think that filters through to the, essentially to the working level? So in the past, I think uh, anything that happened at, for example, the WHO level had always been slightly disregarded and that completely did, did change during, since COVID-19. And that's the same for the G20. So of course, even though it happens at the global level, we see that probably some of these uh, new proposals and for example, the new international treaty will definitely have implications for operations at regional level, but also at national level. And this is for, both for governments that they have to adhere to new standards, but also for industry. Besides this, of course, there are also some of the contentious issues that I've mentioned before that will definitely reshape the pharmaceutical research and development landscape to some extent. And this, again, this is at the global level, but it definitely has implications for regional level. And we see that some of these proposals that have been brought forward at the WHO are actually now more and more seen at regional level or even at national level as well. So, for example, the push for diversifying manufacturing capacity to low and middle income countries could impact how supply chains are run and also how medical products are being distributed, which then countries have to adjust to, including businesses. There are also some proposals that are being discussed at the G20 and also the WHO that could also disincentivize the research and the development landscape in itself. So, for example, what I previously mentioned, the intellectual property waivers have a big impact, like what we've seen with the TRIPS waiver for vac the COVID-19 vaccines. But also there are also discussions going on for the transparency in research and development funding and also the, the pricing of medical products, for example. And all of these little building blocks of why companies invest in R&D are essentially, again, being taken into question of how the com countries can change some of these incentives to make sure that mm, of how countries can change some of these incentives to make sure that they can they can leverage these incentives to make sure that the the vaccines and the therapeutics and diagnostics are being distributed across the world. But overall, I think the big question is, of course, whether all these discussions and on the new platforms and the treaties will actually have an impact on preventing and preparing for the next pandemic and responding to the next pandemic. We saw with COVID-19 that there were huge disruptions for businesses, both in the pharmaceutical world, but also beyond that. And we know that there's going to be a new pandemic down the line at some point. And so these discussions and negotiations at the G20, but also the WHO will be quite critical in, in deciding the path for countries, but also for businesses and for at, at the regional level as well for how, what, how the world is going to respond to the next pandemic. I think that's a pretty punchy argument to end on. If the G20 is going to help um, pinpoint a way for how we can respond to future pandemics, I think it's absolutely going to be 
an event to listen to. So thank you very much, Saskia. No problem. Thank you for having me. And on this note, we are at the end of this month's episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. We're clearly looking at a very interesting month of August. We are going to see whether the BRICS group of countries emerge from their summit as a larger organization with new members. We will see whether the leaders attending the Amazon gathering are going to succeed in agreeing a strong unified declaration that they can then take to COP. And we are going to watch how the G20 health ministers will navigate some of those really contentious questions which they need to answer to ensure that the world is better prepared for any future pandemics. As always, if you, your business, or your investments are exposed to any of the topics that we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find the contact details of our presenters and of our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you to Magnus, Maris, and Saskia, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>